Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org and please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. Because we're getting into a place where often I've been talking about the synoptic gospels. You guys should have that word down by now. Synoptic gospels refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And because they have so much similarity in their writings, and then John sets apart from them, he comes from a totally different perspective as he's bringing the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his goal is to specifically give uh, the number seven is big in his gospel if you go through it, but he gives seven uh, miracles that Jesus does. He gives testimonies at the very end. He said, I suppose if I would write everything that Jesus had done during his ministry, all the books in the world could not contain these things, but these have been written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And so he had a definite purpose in the writing of his gospel. So we're going to finish out Matthew 18 in our first two points, and we're going to go over to the gospel of John, and we're going to hang out in the gospel of John until we get to chapter 10. I believe it's around verse 15. And John brings us to about five or six months before Jesus's crucifixion. After that, we're going to head over to Luke's gospel because Although he's part of the synoptic gospels, um, if you look at the gospels, you see that Mark is the shortest of all gospels, and then Matthew and Luke are similar in length and size, Luke a little shorter than Matthew, but uh, Luke picks up a number of things, accounts, parables, that neither Matthew, Mark, or Luke talk about. And to be honest with you, I know we're in this timeline, I just didn't know where to insert them in the chronological journey through the gospel. Sometimes it's hard to put the uh, things in order. And so we are going to kind of focus on John for a little bit and go into Luke until we catch up. And we will, and it'll drop us back into Matthew 19. But it's going to be a few months before we get there. And so we're kind of, to me, it's kind of like nomad, nomad's land or something. We're in this place where we're not quite sure where these should be inserted, but they're part of Jesus's ministry. We know we're right around that timeline. And so we're just going to kind of work our way through. John's kind of easy because he dates, as we'll see, he talks about the Feast of Tabernacles. He just talked about the Feast of Dedication in chapter five or six. So he's kind of easy because he's giving us timestamps but Luke, we don't have such timestamps. So that's coming up over the next few months where we'll largely concentrate in John and Luke. But right now, today, we're going to be looking at three things, two of them coming from Matthew's gospel, picking up in verse 15 and taking it all the way through verse 35. And then we'll jump over to John chapter 7, really just to set us up for what we'll be teaching on next week. But maybe the most important part of this teaching is found in the first two points where Jesus deals 
with conflict resolution, how the church should handle conflicts in verses 15 through 20, and then talks about the dangers of unforgiveness in verses 21 through 35 and gives a parable to kind of explain that to us. And, you know, as I was going over the sermon this morning, and I was finished by putting my stuff together by Thursday. I I have a, a paper due in school, so I was writing on Friday and Saturday morning and uh, didn't get back to it until this day. But what really stood out to me about the parable of the unforgiving servant is that we'll discover that the one servant who owed his master more than he could ever repay was forgiven because he humbled himself before his master, but he did not have a forgiving heart. And that's the warning that Jesus gives. But we fall in that same camp as Christians because the Lord has paid a debt that we could never pay ourselves. Don't let us as Christians stand in the place of having an unforgiving heart and looking down on others. That just spoke to me this morning. We'll look at that in our second point. And then we're going to look at John chapter 7. Let me go ahead and just read the opening of Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, which says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go, tell him his fault between you and him alone. But if he hears you, you have gained I put the but in there. I shouldn't have inserted that. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And so, Father, we do pray that you would be with us as we go through your word today. As we look through this passage of conflict resolution given to us in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, as we pick up in verse 21 uh, through the end of the chapter and learn about the importance of forgiveness in our lives. And as we uh, journey into John's gospel, just beginning in chapter 7, I pray, Lord, that you would have Help us to hear, to have open hearts, to hear what your spirit is saying to us, to your church this day. Also today, Lord, we do want to remember the gifts given to this ministry, the work that you've called us to. We thank you, Lord, for your past provision. And we thank you, Lord, for your current provision. For not only our fellowship, but for our homes as well, for our families as well. You know everyone's need. And Lord, we look to you and your provision in our lives. Maybe, Lord, we don't always get those things we hope or would like to have, but, Lord, you have always supplied our needs. You brought us to this point. And we pray that you continue to be with us and be with this church. We ask now, Lord, that you'd bless us as we look in your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. So in this sermon, I titled it Conflict, Unforgiveness, and Tabernacles. We're going to look at resolving conflict here in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. We're going to look at the consequences of unforgiveness in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. 
And preparing for the Feast of Tabernacles, John 7, verses 1 through 13. So quite a bit of scripture, and let's go ahead and get into the text I already read from Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. And here, Jesus gives us a three-step process of dealing with conflict, resolving conflict. The first step, if someone has something against you, and there's an issue between you and another, that you're to go to that person, you're to deal with it between you and the individual alone. And perhaps the person... I, I was thinking about that on Thursday. There was a time many years ago when I played in a Christian band and we had, uh, we went through a lot of sound people uh, running our sound system for us. I don't know why, but uh, we went through a number of sound people and one of the guys, um, I offended him somehow, but I had no idea that I had offended him. It was beyond me. So sometimes there's those occasions where you may say something that you're not, being malicious in how you're speaking. You're not meaning, meaning any harm in what you have said, but it was taken the wrong way. And someone is offended, but you have no clue, no idea that there's been an offense made. And sometimes by talking about it, it could be as simple as that. It's like, oh man, I had no idea that that offended you. I, I'm so sorry. It's just, if you don't know, you can't apologize. But maybe there was a cause. Maybe there was a reason. And without talking about it, without working it out, it won't get resolved. So Jesus said, first step, go to that person alone. Our problem is we often like to skip to step two. Step two is a good step because if the situation can't be resolved, the Lord says, take two or three with you. So bring others in Get them involved in the process. So the whole point is to gain a brother. If he hears you, if you're forgiven, you've gained a brother. It is not to gang up on a brother or sister. It's not to come against in a multitude of people to gang up on them, but to gain a brother. So also, if you get other people involved, you need to make sure that they are unbiased in this situation. So what you don't do, it's like, man, he really got me mad, and I'm going to tell some other people, and I want to get some people who's on my side, that they can kind of come alongside me and, and join my effort to put this person down and to say that I'm right and he's wrong. No, you want unbiased opinions that you could discover that you're the one who is at fault. They may hear the situation and judge that you're the one at fault. You're the one who needs to seek forgiveness and not your brother, or it could be vice versa. So you want to have impartial judges to look at the situation from the outside, that they may be able to shed new light into the situation, something that you didn't even see or understand that could lead to true reconciliation. Again, the idea is to have unbiased, impartial judges. And Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 19.15, a portion of it that says, this is the whole verse, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he, has com he commits, 
but by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If both parties are willing to heed the decision of the two or three witnesses, then you will be able to reconcile with your brother or sister. We in the Calvary Chapel movement, it's kind of common. We have it in our uh, bylaws here at this church as well. If there was an issue that happened with me and it got to a point in the congregation itself that it could not be resolved in-house, then uh, the way the bylaws are written, you go through a tribunal of pastors, uh, other Calvary Chapel pastors, that they hear the case, kind of sit as judges, and they judge. I know a church that did this, and uh, the Calvary Chapel pastors um, gave what their opinion should be. The pastor of the fellowship said, I disagree with your opinion. And they said, if you disagree with our opinion, then you can no longer continue to be a Calvary Chapel. And he said, okay, I disagree with your opinion and we are no longer a Calvary Chapel. And so um, it doesn't mean that things will always get resolved, but the hope is that you gain a brother and here in the church setting, the third, third step, bring it to the church. If the first and second step doesn't work, then bring it to the church. And we have examples of this in Scripture. I think we should heed the Scripture on this um, in bringing it to the church. Here's a couple of examples that we have in the book of Acts. Acts 6, verses 1 and 2. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of disciples. So there was a conflict. It was about the widows, the Hebrew widows versus the Hellenist widows. They were all Jewish in this particular situation. It was the church. They were all Jewish, but some were more, uh, had the more Greek culture and some were holding to the traditional Jewish culture. Culture. They were all Christians and they were saying that there was a unfair distribution, um, that there was basically uh, racism in the sense of you're Grecian, so you don't get as much food. You're Hebrew, we're going to give you more food. It could be the other way around. But there was an issue. And so they brought it, the disciples, the 12, summoned the multitude of disciples. They summoned the church and they went on, and I'm not going to read the rest of it, but they went on to offer a solution and then allowed the church to make the choice. So bring it to the church. Acts 15, verses 1 and 2. This is uh, known to us as the Jerusalem Council, and it takes all of Acts 15 to go through. We're only going to look at the opening verses where it says certain men came down from Judea. They went to Antioch. They came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, I mean, there was a big Argument, the way the Greek would word it there, no small dissension or dispute, but it blew up. 
And it was determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So in Antioch, they were submitting to the authority of the church in Jerusalem and they they went to the headquarters of the, today we would say the denominational headquarters, but there's only one church. There was only one church then as well. And they went to Jerusalem to lay out the situation before the church there in Jerusalem. So those are two great examples of what it means to come before the church. So restoration should be our chief goal. If we truly want to resolve conflicts, we must be willing to set aside our pride. Sometimes that's the hard part. Seek forgiveness. And sometimes forgiving others who have wronged us is all that we can do just because you're willing to forgive, it doesn't mean that the forgiveness will be received by the other individual. But remember, as we forgive those who have hurt us, our forgiveness can lead to their repentance. If it leads to repentance, it can lead to a restored relationship where we gain back a brother and sister in Christ. So Jesus went on to say, 18 through 20, as surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I again say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. So Jesus had said this in Matthew 16:19 to Peter I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven and so this speaks about the active role or authority that Jesus gave to his disciples to the under shepherds to his church those who follow them and although these verses specifically teach how to deal with a brother or sister who has wronged us, they also show us that there's great power in the church when the church is united as one. 1 John 5.14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So the statement, and I've said this often through the years, but where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst. Perhaps this is one of the most misapplied verses in Scripture because it's often quoted when you call for a prayer meeting and one other person shows up. What's the verse you always fall back on? It's this one in Matthew 18:20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Or maybe only a few show up, but still we fall back on it. This is a a great verse in small churches and also large churches. I think sometimes we don't understand that in the large churches, they have the big show on Sundays. But Lily and I spent two years at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, nearly two years uh, worshiping there in 1992 to 1994 at that time. They believed and they didn't, you know, count, but by gifts and ties that came into the fellowship, 
they had a guesstimated number of about a membership of 30,000 people. We never saw 30,000 people on a Sunday morning. But I can tell you their sanctuary of 3,000 filled up, especially the second service, not so much the first and the third service, maybe always full, maybe sometimes not always full. But there was also overflow. Some people just didn't want to come into the sanctuary and they love sitting outside. It's California. You can do that. And uh, some people just always sat outside. Some people, they had small children. They would go to an overflow room where they could sit with their children because there were so many people coming on a Sunday that uh, children were not allowed in the service. And uh, you think, well, that's cruel. Well, think about this. At the same time, numbers-wise, their children's ministry up to kindergarten, I believe, had five to 900 children a week passing through there. So there was a lot of kids. But when it comes time for calling a prayer meeting, you don't get those numbers. You show up on a Sunday night, you didn't fill up the sanctuary. You come in the midweek, you didn't fill up the sanctuary. So they had their big services. But what Calvary chapels are known for, going through the word verse by verse, teaching through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, that was Chuck's Sunday night service. And he didn't even fill up the sanctuary on Sunday nights. And so even the larger churches, I mean, we have the degree of the faithful and those who show up no matter when a service might take place. But the Lord is with us. But we need to not forget that, and this is important, Jesus said these words, though I totally believe if only three people show up in a church, the Lord is with us. I totally believe that. But he spoke these words in context, talking about if you have a brother who has sinned against you. So he spoke these words saying, if you take these steps to deal with the conflict, I'll be with you. Just know that I'll be with you. So you're not going at it alone. And I think we need to remember that. Sometimes we forget that. The Lord said, I'll be with you. I'll help you through the process. Just go and start dealing with it. But we also need to remember that there is great power when the church is united as one. And when resolving conflict, may we always involve Christ in every step. Well, that brings us to... Matthew 21 through 35. And by the way, the, these two passages from verses 15 through 35, Mark and Luke didn't deal with this. John didn't deal with this. So these stand alone in Matthew's gospel. And that's why we're going through it this way today. So Peter had a question. Peter probably thought, I know some people that I have issues with. So he had a question for Jesus. And he said, Lord, verses 21 and 22, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So we need to understand that rabbinical tradition taught that you only needed to forgive someone three times. If that is the case, if Peter was kind of springboarding off of that, when he asked this question, he's thinking, 
Wow, I'm going to ask Jesus this question. Maybe I should double it plus one. So if rabbinical tradition says three times, and I say six plus one, seven times, man, I am the rock, right? I am Peter. I do have the keys to the kingdom. Look at me, Lord. I'm willing to give up to seven times. I doubled it plus one. Who could argue with that? But Jesus said, not seven. How about 490 times? And Peter might have thought, Lord, 490 times, I might lose count. It's like, you're right. You probably will. You should lose count. There's no limit in the number of times. In fact, Luke 17, 3 through 4, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day, and seven times a day he returns saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now, I admit that if somebody wrongs you seven times a day, it's going to get old really fast. Think about our relationship with Christ. And aren't you glad that our waywardness does not get old really fast with Christ? That he's willing to forgive. We need to have that heart of forgiveness. Even if the offending party seeks forgiveness over and over again. This is because to have an unforgiving heart, we can have the roots of bitterness set in. As we read from Hebrews 12, 14, and 15, it says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any roots of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Restoration should be the chief goal. And notice that in Hebrews 12 verse 15, by this many become defiled. Sometimes if you don't work out something, it's a kind of between two people issue and you don't work it out, sometimes it ends up impacting others around you. And then it comes to that point to where many are brought into the situation. Take uh, issue, the Hatfield and the McCoys. Just think about that family feud that went on. And people were being killed because it. two guys couldn't get along in their community down in the south. So he tells this parable, and we begin in verse 23 through 27. There was a, in the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But he was not able to pay. His master commanded that he should be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that the payment should be made. And the servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. Don't look past those final words. Forgave him the debt. He did not say, all right, you got more time. But a year from now, if you're not paid it up, you're going to jail. No, he forgave the debt. It was totally clean. It was wiped off his slate. Albert Barnes, one of the commentators of old, stated that a talent 
was a sum of money that weighed kind of the weight of either silver or gold or bronze. It really didn't matter, but it was the amount of 3,000 shekels. And so 3,000 shekels, this guy owed his master how many talents? 10,000 talents. So that's a lot of shekels. I didn't do the math on that. But he basically owed him beyond what he would ever be able to pay. That's the idea of this. His debt was beyond his ability to pay. And when the king demanded payment, learned that he could not pay, and not only was ready to throw him into debtor's prison, but his whole family, his wife, his children, to sell everything he had until the debt was paid, which meant that the debt would never be paid anyways. The man fell down, and it's a word that means to bring low. It's a word that we use for worship. He fell down and begged for forgiveness. So in humility, he humbled himself before his king. In James 4.10, it reminds us to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift us up. And he was lifted up. The king forgave his debt. We can't forget that part because we pick up in verses 28 through 30. That servant, when he went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So not a talent, not a shekel, but denarii. And so if 10,000 talents equaled a whole lot of shekels, it would mean a lot more denarii would be pulled into that. And sorry, I didn't do the math. That would be interesting to pull the numbers together. But he laid hands on him. He took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. Even the king didn't do that to him. And the fellow fell down at his feet. He begged him. And notice both said to the one that they were indebted to, have patience with me. They both fell down, humiliated themselves, fell down in humility before them. They both said, have patience with me and I will pay you all. But he would not. And he went and threw him in prison till he should pay the debt. So a denarius... It's about a day's labor for a common man. So I looked up the Jewish calendar. There's anywhere from 353, 354, 355 days in a year on the Jewish calendar. They have what is called a, a solar lunar calendar. And so they're following the sun and the moon as it rotates around. And they don't have leap year like we have to kind of correct. We have every four years, we get a leap year to kind of write the ship as far as our calendar is concerned with the sun. What they do is every once in a while, they have an extra month, the month of Nisan. Uh, they have Nisan 1, Nisan 2. I believe last year was that year where they corrected by throwing an extra 30 days in. So they follow basically the full moon. And that begins their month. And the first of the day is the full moon. So I averaged out those numbers. That would mean they'd have 50 Sabbaths in a year, not including the special feast days and the Sabbaths that they would have with those. But it would mean that they have about 304 days of labor a year. 
So this guy owed about a hundred's day worth of labor. So about a third of the year labor. It's a big debt, uh, whatever you might make um, in a year. Let's just say easy math for me. You make $60,000 a year and you owe somebody $20,000. It's a big debt, but it's a reachable debt if you are wise with your money and you can pay over time, that could be doable. But it was no way close to the debt that this man had owed his king. He had a debt he could never repay, and yet he grabbed this guy by the throat and threw him into debtor's prison until the debt could be paid, which would mean friends and family would probably come together to help buy his way out of prison. Both men fell down at the feet of their debt holder. Both men asked for patience and time to repay their debt. One man had been totally forgiven, but the second man was thrown into prison. Now God is very concerned how we deal with those who have less than us and deal with the poor, we might say. Those who are financially challenged, they like to spend words these days in the day and age that we live in, so it's bad to say poor. But we understand what poor means. You don't have enough to survive. Proverbs 21:13. whoever shuts up his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. God said, be careful. If you're not willing to help those who have less than you, then you're not going to be heard by me. You need to have such a heart as I have. Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8, just picking up the last few words of verse 7. You shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him, willingly lead, lend sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. So we need to be willing to have a giving hearts. So it was when his fellow servants, so what he did, others saw, verses 31 through 35, it takes us through the end of the chapter. When his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved. They came to the master and told all that he had done. And when his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant and had pity just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So now it's even worse. His situation grew worse. Before he was thrown in prison with all of his family, he had to sell all that he had. But now he's being tortured. Put him on the rack. I don't know what the torture was. But he was being tortured, which meant it was not good. He was going to suffer pain. And then Jesus said, verse 35, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each one of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. Peter asked, Lord, how many times? A brother sinned against me. How many times should I forgive him? Up to seven times? And the Lord said, how about 70 times seven? Lord, that's a big number. I can do the math. That's 490, and I'll probably forget. Yep, you probably will. Have forgiving hearts. 
Because having been forgiven by Christ should give us forgiving hearts. There was an old hymn. I was, well, it's not too old, I guess. It's not like 1919. I don't know why I picked that date, but it just came out. But 1977, here's the opening verse of that hymn. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, amazing grace all day long. Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. And having been forgiven for Christ should cause us to want to have forgiving spirits. Doing pretty good so far. So let's get over to John chapter 7. And this is really just setting us up for the next few chapters in the Gospel of John. So it's the third year of Jesus' ministry. And this is known as the year of opposition. And, and really, it plays in with what happens between Jesus and his half-brothers in the beginning of this chapter. So the year of opposition, Jesus is having problems with the religious rulers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the chief priests, the high priests. They're almost all of them having issues with Jesus. It's in John 6, 4, we learned of the Passover feast. In chapter 5, we learned of the feast of dedication. Now we come to the feast of tabernacles. Tabernacles is the fall celebrations. So it's fall. And uh, by spring next year, Jesus will be put on the cross and crucified. So it's the fall season and it's the Feast of Tabernacles. So in that fall month, they have the Feast of Trumpets on the first day, the Day of Atonement on the 10th, the Feast of Tabernacles running from the 15th through the 21st, and a Day of Sabbath rest on the 22nd. So you hung out a lot at the temple during this month. And it brings us here to chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. So the conflict was there. Jesus remained in the Galilee, but now it's getting close to the time where he will offer his life upon the cross. It's getting near. We're five to six months away. In John 5, 18, it says, Therefore all the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also because he said that God was his father making himself equal with God. And so they were really frustrated with Jesus at this point. They wanted to see him dead. So Jesus was just staying away from Jerusalem, staying out of Judea at this time. Now, verses 2 through 5, it was the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. His brothers said for him, Depart from here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe him. So there's a part of the church that believes that this is not brothers, this is his cousins talking to him. But it does say, 
adelphos, which is a Greek word for brothers. It actually means born of the same parents. In this case, Jesus, they had the same mother, Jesus born of God, but his brothers born of Mary and Joseph. The Bible tells us in Matthew 1.25 that Joseph did not know her, did not have sexual relations with her. That's the meaning of that. Until she had brought forth her firstborn son and called him Jesus. And then don't forget in Mark 6.3 that Mark names the brothers for us, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. So they're named for us in Scripture. And then we see them again in Acts 1.14 when Mary is worshiping with the church right before the day of Pentecost or on the day of Pentecost. It says that the women were there, Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. So the brothers at this time did not believe. They would, though, come to faith in Christ because there they are, worshiping on the day of Pentecost. It hadn't quite happened where the Spirit came down at that point, but Mary was there with her sons, worshiping with the church, waiting upon the Lord. So six through nine, then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that the works, its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in the Galilee. So it appears that they departed. Jesus remained in the Galilee. The reason, he said, my time has not yet come. And this is a big issue in the Gospel of John. We're going to see it over and over again in the Gospel of John. We already had seen it once in John chapter 2. This is the second mention of Jesus talking about his time. He used that, whether speaking about his time or his hour, some 10 times in John's Gospel. Like in chapter 2, verse 4, 6, verse, or 7, verse 6, and also in verse 8, my hour or my time has not yet come. John 7, 30 and 8, 20, my hour has not yet come. John 12, 23, 13, 1, 17, 1, the hour has come. In John 7, 27, twice he says, Father, save me from this hour. And so this is a major theme in John's gospel. And so basically Jesus is saying that it's not my time to go to the cross yet. But my time is coming and there's a point in John chapter 12 where it switches up and he says my hour has come. So Jesus, he knew he was hated by the religious rulers. Religious rulers, he knew that uh, the reason was because he had testified that their works were evil because he had said that my father God, uh, he claimed God as his father. And although the world hates the truth, it is only through the truth of Jesus that the world can be set free. In John 8:32, it tells us, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. We find the same similar condition in our world today. That as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, as trusting in the word of God, people don't like us because of these things. It used to be that perhaps the world 
appreciated the Word of God in the church, but not in our world, not in our culture today. It is less and less appreciated by our culture today. I don't know how true it is today, but I saw, you know, social media. Of course, everything's true on social media. But um, this morning on social media that the current administration of our president, their administration, believe that uh, the church is truly against them, that uh, the church itself is backwards. They view the church as being backwards. And maybe they do view it that way, that we are backwards in our thinking. We see that. Remember in the book of Acts, when the church began to explode, Paul and Silas were accused of turning the world upside down. But in actuality, they were taking a world that was already turned upside down and turning it right side up again. So yeah, the world views us as backwards. That shouldn't be odd. But only through Christ can people be set free. So in verse 10, when his brothers had gone up, he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. So why did Jesus go? He said he wasn't going to go. He said, it's not my time. But he went. He went in secret first. He went in secret because his hour had not yet come. So he didn't go openly. Just think about this. Five or six months later, the triumphal entry would take place. He would go openly because he would say at that point, my hour has come. And so he would show himself as the Messiah, as the Savior. He would ride in on a donkey's coat, in humility, with fanfare. But not at this time. It was not the time. Second, he attended because the Mosaic Law required him to be there. In Deuteronomy 16, 16, the word says, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which I choose at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. The Word of God said that He needed to be there. And Jesus always walked in compliance with His Father. In John 8, 29, it says, The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. So Jesus was walking in obedience to the Lord, but at this point, He didn't show Himself openly But he was there. Six months later, he would come and the people would be shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But just a few days later, they would also shout, crucify, crucify him and hang him on a tree. So 11 through 13, we wrap it up. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? So people were looking for Jesus. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. And others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. We're going to learn in John chapter 9 of a mom and dad being excommunicated out of the Jewish community, um, fearing that excommunication. And that's what's going on here. We're going to get more detail about that as we go through the Gospel of John. Over the last few years, the people had grown accustomed to Jesus being at the feast days. They'd have grown accustomed to, maybe they came and said, well, wonder what he's going to do this time. 
You know, remember when he came and they at Passover, they had all the money tables set up and stuff, and he came and just turned over the tables and said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves, that which is to be a house of prayer. Maybe they were wondering what kind of miracles they would see. They were looking for Jesus, and some were saying he was a good man. Others were saying he deceives the people. Even Nicodemus testified in John 3, 2, saying to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. But others saw him as a deceiver. And the world had a various opinion. And remember back in Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter responding, uh, the disciples initially responding, saying, some say that you are John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, maybe one of the other prophets, and Peter responding, that you are the Christ, the Son of God. There was a variety of opinion concerning Jesus, but the people at this time were afraid to speak out because the religious rulers had come against Jesus. They wanted to put him to death, and they were threatening to put people out of their culture. It might mean that you can't work. It might mean that you won't be able to be part of a family unit, part of the community. You'll be put out. So they're very concerned about that. But my question for you today is, where's Jesus in your life today? There was a variety of opinions concerning Jesus at that time. Even his brothers didn't believe in him at that time. Has Jesus found a home in your hearts? So today's teaching, conflict, unforgiveness, tabernacles. We first look at resolving conflict in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, where Jesus gave us a three-step process of resolving conflict. Step one, go to that person alone. Now, let me say this. And I thought about that this morning as well. If there is a conflict, and uh, especially if you're a woman, but even a guy, and, and you fear for your life, don't go to... If you're a woman and there's a conflict with a guy, or vice versa, I would say never try to deal with it, unless it's your husband and wife, never try to deal with it one-on-one. -on -one. That's just not wisdom. Uh, if it's a guy on guy, if it's, uh, you know, two sisters, yeah, go try to work it out. But if it's a sister and brother in Christ in the church, have wisdom in that. Make sure other people's around, even if they're not involved in the conflict, but you're in a church setting, it's a safe place. Um, if there's an issue between a husband and wife and the wife is fearing, um, you know, it would be wise to seek counsel before you, maybe in resolving that situation. So uh, don't take this step if you're in fear of your life. Be careful if there's danger present. But step two, take two or more with you. The final step, bring it to the church. Of course, this only applies if both are believers. If it's an unbeliever, they're not going to be concerned about the church. Besides, you can't put an unbeliever outside of the church because they're not in the church in the first place. So it has to be talking about people within the church. But when resolving conflict, 
May we always remember that Christ is there in every step. The second point, the consequences of unforgiveness. From Matthew 18, 21 through 35, Jesus taught about the importance of forgiveness, that we have been forgiven a debt that we could never pay because of our sin. It should cause us to want to have forgiving spirits to others, to be willing to forgive others, not to keep count, um, be willing to forgive. And finally, Jesus going up to the Feast of Tabernacles. We found out here in this passage at this point, even his own brothers didn't believe in him. They would later, though, by the time he was buried and rose again from the grave, they became believers at some point very quickly because 50 days later we see them worshiping with the church. But where is Jesus in your heart today? Has he found a home in your heart? I hope that he has. Let's go ahead and stand and pray as the worship team gathers together to lead us in worship. Father, we thank you for this message. We pray now that you would be with us. So we close out in one last song. Lord, minister to our hearts this day. Whether someone, Lord, hearing these words on the radio, maybe through social media, through our website, Lord, they're hearing these words. Lord, you're pricking their heart wherever they might be in this world. You're touching us right here in this house of worship here in Lake Villa. Help us, Lord, to have hearts willing to respond to you. Maybe, Lord, there's an issue of unforgiveness in our lives, and maybe we need to begin the step today by just laying that out before you and praying to you and asking you to do a work in your own heart to give you wisdom for the next steps that you must take. Whatever the need, Lord, we thank you that you're willing to meet that need. We thank you, Father, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are here in our midst today as we gather to worship with you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and worship together. Of course, it's always harder when I'm starting the song. (laughs) Not impossible. Just got to wait a moment. have a hard time getting into this song. I get it, Dave. I get it.
continue to do those things in our lives today and we look to you Lord for our help and our hope in all ways pray that you would bless us and keep us that your grace and your face would always shine upon us we ask in the name of Jesus amen God bless you